All right, we're on. Thank you both for being here. We have James Hinchcliffe, Becky Dalton, two legends, <laughs> friends, and, and uh, I'm just so grateful and uh, honored that you're both here. I know you're both extremely busy, so. Oh, likewise. Yeah, it's always great to us. see you. It's been too long for us. I know. Where are you right now? We are in Indianapolis. You don't have to give us your address, but roughly. <laughs> <laughs> we are, yeah, we are at home in Indianapolis, which is rare lately, but it's nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice to be home. That's amazing. You've been doing a lot of traveling, I guess, with, uh, with the acting, with uh, everything happening. Yeah, the both of us have. James wrapped up his season in September, so we were out in California for that, basically that whole month. It was almost like three, uh, three weeks almost, yeah. Yeah, and then I was in Canada filming, so been away. Busy fall. <laughs> That's amazing. And as, you know, a couple who are both in the entertainment space, I, I like to consider uh, James a, a gladiator, and, uh, and Becky, you're a gladiator in your own right. You're both in the entertainment space. How do you find... Um, Tell me about your routines. Like, how, how do you do what you do at the highest level? Uh, because you're both, you know, incredibly successful and competitive. How do you do that independent but still come together as a couple and support one another creatively? That is a very good question. Do you want to take this one? Well, why don't you start with your half of it and I can <laughs> chime in with my half because there are, you yeah. know. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, the funny, the funny thing about, um, both of our jobs is that it's very hard to have a routine because you are, you never know where you're going to be one week, things come up and, um, you know, you can't wake up every day at eight and go to the gym and then, you know, go see your friends and go, you know, do your emails and like things pop up all the time. So it's definitely, um, difficult that way to keep a routine. I think that, um, it's nice to have structure, but we don't get that. So it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of work, especially the two of us. I mean, when we weren't together, it was hard enough, but now there's two of us trying to, uh, what, what am I trying to say? <laughs> we try to, yeah, I mean, the, the, <laughs> it's kind of like Becky says, I mean, the, um, whether it's being on set or a race weekend, you know, your time is not your own, uh, things happen. You have to be incredibly flexible. So our routine is not having a routine because <laughs> if you get too set in something and then it gets thrown off by, you know, something coming up, Hey, you've got to be here. You've got to do that. This 12 hour day just became a 16 hour day, whatever. Uh, it throws you off. So I think being adaptable is something that both of us have had to learn how to do in our respective careers. But then it also it also makes us really able to understand each other's career. Yeah. So, you know, if, if I get a phone call saying like, hey, I got a sponsor event in Utah. I've got to get on a plane at eight o'clock tomorrow morning. She's like, yep, I understand that because I just got a audition that I've, I've got to fly to Toronto tomorrow and be in the room somewhere. I'm like, yep, I understand that. So I think it would almost be harder to be in a relationship with someone that didn't have a career yeah. that was, you know, oh, yeah. place those kind of demands on us. Definitely not. <laughs> that's so true it makes me laugh when uh, non-actors marry actors and then they're surprised it's it's sort of like <laughs> yeah. you know what you signed up for you know oh, what i mean yeah. it's like exactly this is this is the gig you married a, a, you know a, someone who's part of the circus so you either join the circus or yep. you know just accept it so yeah. absolutely and i mean agreed. yeah i mean your circus reference is perfect <laughs> yes. for especially for my life because you know the season starts and we know we've got 17, 18 stops and we pull up to a city, we 
put on a show for three days. We tear it all down. <laughs> yes. We move on to the next city and repeat, you know. And so Becky quite literally joined the circus, <laughs> yeah. you know, when she signed up to be with me. Yeah. And yeah, again, I mean, it's um, e- even coming from your background and someone that had a, you know, less than completely normal, I guess, career path. And, you know, you weren't working nine to five, stuff like that. I think even then it was still kind of a shock. Oh, yeah. Getting into that lack of routine, routine kind of thing with uh, with the racing world. And then, yeah, I, I go visit her on set. I'm just floored at the hours that it takes to, to, to make a film and the, how much it changes. Like what I find so fascinating about her business and your business, like the, the film industry, is how many moving parts there are, but how often it all changes. You know, I, I look at how many people are involved and in all the intricacies involved of, of a set and, and a shoot. I'm like, man, you must have like military precision. Every minute is documented. Every minute is there's itinerary for everything that happens. But man, so much of it is just like, like there's a very rough outline of what they <laughs> want to do. And then so much of it is just shooting from the hip and flying by the seat of your pants and things happen you don't you know plan for. And so you have to think on your feet and come up with these solutions on the fly. And totally. I've always been, every time I watch her work, I'm just floored at how anything gets actually done because <laughs> yeah, right. it takes so much improvisation from everybody on the crew. And it's just, it's awesome to watch. It's also boring, isn't it? <laughs> at times it could be boring. <laughs> well, I mean, it, there's, there's a lot of standing around, yes, but it's but it's, as an outsider, it's fascinating. You know, it's fascinating to kind of because you know my my weekends are so structured. Like every minute is planned. Like mm. you're on track from this time to this time. You engineer you're deeper with your engineers from this time to this time. Appearance. Sponsor appearance from this time to this time. Interviews from this time to this time. Hers is okay. We have four <laughs> scenes we're trying to shoot today, and three quarters of the way through four. the day, you're on scene. You're one and a half scenes down. You're like, all right, we're gonna have to figure this out. You know, and it's just, it's just so, it's so fascinating to watch. And but it all comes together. You know, it's a you get a good group of people and they they figure it out. And that's that's the part that I love. The the kind of problem solving on the fly is actually something that I I love being a part of and I love watching happen. Yeah, and I, I had the great pleasure of uh, attending some of your races, both in Long Beach and. I think uh, in Toronto several times and uh, it's it's so exhilarating for for someone who loves cars so much like you know my dad loved cars and so going to the race it's sort of very similar to production it's like here's the sandbox here's the the schedule here's what your itinerary this is what's happening Um, but then there's an element of you know fate of fluidity and whatever happens when you're on that track, you just don't know. Right. So it's the same with film. I mean, we can plan all we want, but you know, in my last film we shot in Cuba, forget it. Like you just throw the plan out the window and say like, where the hell are we going to get light bulbs now? Like it's like that. Right. So, (laughs) uh, but I'm curious, James, when you, uh, so there was a part of the process that I wasn't privy to, which is what happens in the trailer. Um, you know, with the use of VR technology and you have your mental coach and your physical coach and your, your whole team. And tell me about the moment before when all, everything gets quiet and you have to focus and like a gladiator, as soon as you enter the stadium, it's go time. Like, what is that? Tell me about the preparation. And then what is that thing, that switch that goes off? Like, is it the engine? Like, is it the, the, the go? Like, what is it that, um, takes you from, James, the boy from North York, Toronto to Gladiator, like go time. Talk to me about that. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, our our sport's pretty unique in the sense that as the athletes, we're so accessible to everybody that's at the event, you know. So a, a great example is the Indy 500, which is our Super Bowl, right? And the the hour leading up to the race, 
you're surrounded by fans and sponsors and all sorts of things. People are asking for autographs and selfies and all the rest of it. And you're about to go ahead, you know, 340 kilometers an hour into turn one with 32 other cars. The only moment you get is quite literally those moments before the race starts. It's not hours before. It's not a day before. It's seven minutes about when they clear the grid, they say drivers to your cars. And so for me, at least that, that routine, that, ritual of getting ready it's it's putting your earpieces in putting your helmet on putting your gloves on getting in the car compared to the football yeah so so you know i I asked um a reporter who was working the indy 500 one year i said hey you've covered super bowls right so you can come talk to me on the grid before the race what's the earliest before you know kickoff on super bowl sunday you could talk to tom brady and they said thursday wow so, you know, Tom gets three days, I get seven minutes. <laughs> so it's a very different sort Jesus. of world that we live in. And and you're uh, doing, I don't, I don't know if you can say it's more dangerous, but it kind of. Objectively, more... <laughs> I think you can say that. I mean, I'm not saying that football is the safest sport, but I think it's safe to say. I think it's, I was going to say it's, it's life and death, whereas football, right. I mean, injuries happen, but God, man, it's. Yeah. Yeah. The stakes are way higher. What what kind of things are the the coaches telling you? Um, talk to me about the discipline of focusing your mind because if you're not focused, uh, it's like anything in life, right? There's there's that old adage that um, you know race car drivers are not focused on what they don't want. You're not focused on you know hitting a you know a turn or whatever. You're focused on the outcome, which is winning and getting to the finish line. So talk to me about that. Like what what kind of things are your mental coaches talking to you about? So, you know, I worked with um, a coach when I was young in my, you know, the beginning of my career. And one of the big things you work on, I think all athletes do this, is just com- compartmentalization, right? It's being able to take feelings, thoughts, emotions that have nothing to do with driving a race car and putting them on the back burner and not letting them be part of your afternoon. Um, you know, I imagine it's a similar kind of thing for an actor. You know, you've got to get into character. You've got to forget everything that's happening in your real life because you've got to be now in this pretend life but you know mm-hmm. um so it's so a lot of it is exercises in you know working on how to take your emotion out of it keep your focus for an extended period of time um little triggers or sayings that bring you back into place when you notice that your mind's gone to a, a place it shouldn't have in the middle of a race um you know there are all these sort of tips and tricks and and everybody's different everybody reacts differently to to situations and Every athlete's got to find that formula that works for them. And, you know, I was lucky. I worked with a, a really good coach when I was young, and we developed some some really effective strategies for me. And it's those, yeah, it's those little words. It's, you know, putting your stuff on maybe in a certain order. It's, it's it's you know, it's all those things to get the mind, you know, into the right into the right place to go do battle. I think I asked you this one time. Uh, some athletes have rituals, whether it's doing the cross or, you know, touching the soil or what. Do you have any <laughs> ritual that you do right before you race? And if you want to share it, I mean, if it's, if it's, uh, you know, private then. No. Yeah. I mean, Becky, Becky's heard me say this a thousand times, but I'm superstitious about not being superstitious. Wow. Because for, for honestly, for kind of some of the reasons we were just talking about, you know, if, if my ritual is getting dressed a certain way or at a certain pace, like some guys have to put their left glove on before their right glove, or they have to get in from the same side of the car every time, all that stuff. But like I was saying, until seven minutes before the start, there are people all over the place, all over the grid. There are things that happen. And so 
you're not in a controlled environment. And so if something happens that throws that ritual off, then mentally you're potentially already compromised before you ever get it, before the race even starts. And so anything that I did was always something I could do once I was strapped in the car. It's not about how I get dressed or wearing my lucky gloves or any of that stuff. It's just a couple breathing exercises that I know can't be interrupted in the three minutes that I have from when the guy's done belting me in to when we fire up the engines. Uh, so I, I don't, I, I always purposely avoided having anything too sort of, honestly, it goes back to the routine thing. I almost didn't have a routine because the chances of it getting interrupted are just so high. Yeah. That's so interesting. And Becky, what about you? When, when you're sitting in that trailer, I know actors are always looking for validation from the outside, whether it's from audiences, directors, whoever it is. You know what? And and Scorsese said it best. The hardest thing, at least for a director, is getting out of the car. Like we're always nervous. We're always kind of like hyper aware of everything, and and, and like disasterizing. Like anything could go wrong at any time, and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. How are you? How are you feeling? And how do you overcome that that angst right before you you exit the trailer, and uh, and step into you know into that into that world? For me, I completely agree with Scorsese. I think the the hardest the hardest part is action scene one, day one, um, and just getting into it and working with a new person. And, um, and but I've, I've been so lucky for the most part that it always just kind of flows. I've worked with some excellent people and, 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 and usually I can just, that's kind of it for me. And, and, and I, I don't know that I ever looked for validation. Of course you want it, but so many people are so busy on set. They don't have time to praise you. And I like to think, and you know, and, and they do like along the way, if there's a good take or whatever, but you can't, you have to know, okay, I'm here. They, I'm hired. They know I can do this. And, and I know I can do this. And I'm, I come prepared every single day, like overly prepared. And that's all I can really do. Um, I think the only moments are, I guess, when, you know, the director, you know, we're redoing a take over and over again. And it could be the lighting. It could be something. And you don't always hear what's going on. Mm -hmm. And that's when I start like, is it, is it me? Is it my performance? Is it? So that's when I get a little and I have to just let it go. And we just, we just get the shot. And I know that's the thing. You have to work really well with directors, right? Of course, you know, working with actors, the communication and kind of helping each other out and that's in that sense so that I'm not freaking out that it's it's me. <laughs> yeah. And you know when you've done a good job and you know if there's something that you want to do better. So I feel like yeah. you know, it's a part of the practice is having an understanding and a self-awareness of like even though no one from the outside is telling me, like I know that that went well, you know. Yeah. I think the hardest thing is almost comedy. We talked about this in in a couple of films ago that I did. Um but no one can laugh, right? When you're rolling. And then by the time they call cut, the moment's over. And you're, and you're, you're thinking, I think that went well, but I have freaking no idea if this is funny. And every scene that we were doing that was comedy, I had no idea. I was like, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just going with it. No one's saying anything. So it's okay. And then James came to the set and he was talking to some of them and they're like, oh, like, you know, the comedy scenes went so well and they loved it. And I was like, I, I had no <laughs> idea. I was just winging it. I was, I was standing back there in Video Village and the, the producer and the director were like, man, her, her, her timing is so good. Like she's so good at comedy. She's so natural. 
this stuff. And we were driving home from set that day. I said, oh, hey, you know, these guys were saying all these things. And she goes, <laughs> they were? Like, I had no idea. that I'm like, oh, yeah, everybody was cracking up back in the video village. Like, everybody thought you were killing it. She's like, I had no idea. I wasn't <laughs> no. sure I was doing it right. No idea the whole time. Like three weeks in. <laughs> but you just got to, I don't know. I just try not to think about it. Comedy, comedy is really tough. And I'm like a child on set. That's like my happy place. It's probably the only place in life where I'm Zen. And, um, and when, when we worked together on, on Colossal, I was like dying behind the monitor. Um, and I don't know if other directors do that. Cause the, you know, there's different, different styles of leadership for me. It's, it's like, if we're going to laugh together, we're going to laugh together. If we're going to cry together, let's cry together. Like it's, yeah. it's literally we're, we're in this sandbox playing together and there is no hierarchy in that sense. Totally. Um, but one of my first experiences on set was not a positive one. It was like five in the morning. I was all excited to be there. And this crazy director was like swearing at the top of his, you know, at the top of his lungs, throwing things across the room. Like, what is this guy doing on my set? And, and I, and for a long time I was like, to be a leader, I have to do that. And I'm not that guy, you know, I'm not that person. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so it's interesting how people find their style, their way of doing it, you know? So, yep. so it's, it's interesting, yeah, that but is I want to go back in the, leader. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, it's, uh, the hardest thing is being vulnerable. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, in, in sports like racing or football, I can imagine that, that showing that vulnerability is probably a little tougher, uh, but I assume that's changing as well. I want to, I want to go back in the, in the, the way back machine a bit, um, and talk to me about how you guys connected after 12 years of being apart. And, you know, that, that, you know, ha, ha, James, how did you reconnect with your high school sweetheart? And uh, did it take an accident <laughs> to bring you together? And we'll talk about, yeah. I don't want to get into the details because you've recounted that accident a million times. And I know you're probably like rolling your eyes like again, but I want to talk a, a little bit about fate. And if you believe in fate and destiny and how that one quintessential life changing moment actually brought you two together, which is beautiful. Yeah, it's it's funny. It's the you could you could almost say we reconnected by accident, but that's not entirely accurate. It's we reconnected by an accident. <laughs> um, you know, I, I had had a really bad accident in the car, and um, Becky, we'd, we'd kind of always stayed in touch. We hadn't really seen each other for about 12 years, but we had sent the odd message to one another. She would get a movie or a show, and I'd send her a congrats message, or I'd win a race, and she'd reach out and tell me congrats, whatever. And uh, I had this accident and, and she kind of reached out a little while afterwards just to see how I was doing and how recovery was going and things like that. And we just sort of started talking back and forth, you know, it was the first time we'd both been kind of single, if I'm totally honest. And um, we just chatted back and forth for a long time. And uh, a few months later, we were both in Los Angeles together. Um, sorry, not together. No. <laughs> we were both in Los Angeles and we met up for dinner. Yeah. And... We uh, laughed for three straight hours and yeah, we... We almost got kicked out because we were laughing so hard that the waiters told us that we were being disruptive. We were bothering the tables around us, yeah. which sounds like a them Damn problem. Canadian. We were, yeah. Sorry we're having fun. Yeah. Just maybe you should have you should more try. fun. Join the party. Yeah. Join me, won't you? And, uh, and yeah, that was, that was kind of it. We had that meal and it was, it was, all, it was all downhill from there. But yeah, I, I, honestly, I, I do. I, I subscribe to... Whether you call it fate or destiny, I in my head I say that everything happens for a reason. And you know, I I obviously went through a really bad accident, and I you know nearly lost my life, and 
Uh, it changed my perspective on a whole lot of things, and there were silver linings that came out of it. But you know, the biggest one obviously was having a legitimate reason to reach out to me, and and when she did, it just kind of started the whole thing off, and here we are. That's amazing. That's an incredible story, and um, I think. Last time we met, I think Becky, you told me you you actually played a role where that scene played out in Ugh. in the TV show, and then it played out in real life. Do you want to talk to us about that? It's kind of like gives oh. me chills when I think about it. <laughs> yeah, it gives everyone chills. Um, I was on an episode of the show Saving Hope, um, a Canadian series, um, and it's a like a hospital series. And my role was the girlfriend of an IndyCar driver who got in a very serious accident and was losing blood very quickly, um, which is exactly what happened to James. Um, and, you know, there's a scene of me running in by his, beside his stretcher crying, and it's very dramatic. And uh, they fix him up. We're in the recovery room. And uh, the, one of the first questions he asks is, when do I get back in a car again? And I... And I spoke to the director after and he's like so what do you think of all this I was like yeah it's it it's a really cool story I just I feel like with his kids and his girlfriend in the room like his one of his first questions isn't going to be when do I get back in a car again that's so insensitive and it's so insane why would he want to do that that's not realistic meanwhile that was James's second or third Third question question, that he had asked when when he woke up from his accident and the the director said would you ever um date uh, a, a race car driver and I, I said absolutely not I could never handle this this is way too dangerous for me never you know that's off the table um, but but when the show finally aired they used a clip of an actual IndyCar race and James was in that clip so when I actually showed him the episode I didn't know that so when we were watching he's like that's my car <laughs> that's me what it's like what it was crazy yeah it was funny yeah, I showed it to his mom and she was like oh uh, meant to be <laughs> and look at you you had to put your foot in your mouth wow. because you didn't just date one you married one yeah <laughs> yeah wow that and is it's stressful. that is crazy <laughs> that is crazy um yeah james when um when your identity is first of all you're you're like a canadian legend uh canadians you know and i I seen that firsthand at the races. I mean, you're so adored and you know, the, the t-shirts and that we even have the model car. My, my, my son got the model car, which is cool. And, uh, I actually remember, uh, somebody on your team put him in the car. Mm-hmm. And the first thing Lucas said was, God, it's so sweaty and stinky in there. <laughs> you know, that was like, <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was an amazing moment. But, um, when you're, when your whole identity is so connected to what you do, and even after that accident, the first thing you said is, when can I get back in? Um, and, you know, when I've spoken to a lot of athletes, they sort of think the same way or actors. They can't imagine a life outside of racing or acting or playing football or whatever. How do you manage that? Because you, you you know, second place, dancing with the stars, like you're on national television in America doing something that, you know, I would have never imagined you doing, which is dancing uh, formally. Same. So talk to me about that. Like, how do you, do you, do you apply the same discipline and principles to that? Yeah, it's, it's actually exactly how that worked. Um, you know, that, that show was um, not something I would have done, honestly, before my accident. You know, I talked about some of the silver linings that came out of, of having that experience. One of them was 
you know, taking bigger risks in life and, and, and saying yes to things that you get a new perspective on what's really important and what's not. Mm. And what would have made me say no to that show maybe before the accident was I don't want to look silly on TV. And it's like, that actually doesn't matter. Like, that's not an important thing. Mm. And it's a cool experience. You know, once in a lifetime, you might as well take a swing. So for me, it was the the night of the very first show. So it's live. So the first, the first week, we get through the first dance and, you know, I didn't trip, which was all that I was hoping for. And you get the scores at the end of it, you know, little paddles and whatever. And at the end of the show, they put up a scoreboard. I, so, I mean, this is probably a terrible thing to admit. I hadn't really watched the show before <laughs> I was on it. So I didn't understand exactly how it worked. Yeah. I no didn't time, realize no time. all the rules. Yeah. yeah so okay. um, they put a scoreboard up and it had, it had all the scores. And they said, like, yeah, we're going to keep a running tally as the season goes on of everybody's scores. And as soon as I saw that scoreboard, and actually after the, the first night, I was tied for first with an, another couple. I was like, oh, this is a competition. This isn't, a, this isn't about learning how to dance now. This is about winning. And to win, I have to learn how to dance. That's like a byproduct of the end goal here. And so in that moment, something just flipped in my brain. And I immediately turned to my partner and I was like, what time do we start tomorrow? You know, like, let's get to work. And that's that sort of mentality that I, you know, brought into sport was exactly what I applied to the show. And it was very effective, you know, and athletes do well on the show because we are used to pushing ourselves and we're used to repetition. We're used to failing and learning how to improve and things like that. So I think that is like the formula for how to be successful on that show, especially as someone that came in with absolutely no dancing ability whatsoever. And so that, yeah, it served me, it served me really well. And now I have the dual identity of driver and dancer. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. Well, and yeah, I mean, you can do whatever you want, right? That's true. You know, it's those principles, what you, what you just said, it's like, and that's how this podcast was, it was born out of that. I was mentoring, um, filmmakers as part of being black in Canada. And I realized they don't need to know where to stick the camera. What they really need is mental and emotional encouragement they needed to know that the feelings they were feeling were totally normal they needed to learn about mindset uh setting goals and and being disciplined towards achieving them and and i thought to myself let me just find like the most successful people in the world that do this every day and let's unpack that and see if some of those skills can be transferred to to these like emerging artists you know because we didn't all have mentors you know but um I want to talk to you about that. Like, Becky, who were your mentors or heroes? um, And how did you get into acting in the first place? I was kind of always, I kind of always loved performing. Um, When I was younger, I just, I always wanted to make people laugh. My big thing when I was little was doing Steve Urkel impressions. And I'd pull my pants up, you know, all the way as far as they could go. I haven't seen this impression yet. So I can't, I can't wait for him to this up and get that. Can we see it? Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh, I haven't done it in like I'll film it, I'll, I'll text it to you. <laughs> um, and and I, my, my, my parents I loved totally it, my brother it. loved I it. I totally picture it. And I just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just kind of a goofball. And you know, I played the trump, no, the trombone. And the only reason I picked the trombone was because it's hilarious. Like it was the same size as me. What was I doing? So I would come home with it and I'd clear out a space in the room and I'd just play it so dramatically and my family just loved it and I and I just I just love making them laugh I love performing so I went into 
acting classes very quickly. I, um, I was in a lot of festivals, camps. I just, I just loved it. And then I, and I worked really, really hard at it. And then I, it was when I was 12 years old, there was a massive casting call in Toronto for Peter Pan, the live Peter Pan. And someone had told us about it. So my dad and I just went down and I auditioned for it. And I went through every single round that day. And then they asked me to come back. And I think there were like, I think that day there were about 1500 girls and they narrowed it down to 20 for, from Toronto, of course. Um, they, they went elsewhere, but, um, but it just went so well. And that's when I was like, this is what I want to do. And actually James and I did acting classes in high school together, which is how we became friends. He's a really good actor as well. Um, and then I got an agent out of that and then I just kept going, but it was always, it was always in me. And I never, you know, I didn't go to school for acting. My parents said, you got to get something else in case this falls through a real job. Yeah. (laughs) Then I went into psychology and I was like, the science is not me. Um, so I went into sociology because it's the study of people. And I thought, well, maybe this will help me in some way. Um, but then I just started working because I was in downtown Toronto. So it was commercial after commercial. And then I booked a sitcom. And I actually couldn't finish my last year at university because of it. But um, but then I just consistently kept working. So that's kind of, it, it was just always there for me. And, and I've gone through ups and downs throughout the years where, you know, there's a lull and you're not getting work and you start, yeah. you're getting older and you start questioning, what do I want? What am I doing? You know, and I live in Indianapolis. That's not easy for an actor. Um, so I've had to go through some ups and downs with that. <laughs> um, and you know, silver lining of COVID for me was self tapes are all it's the things. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I set up a self tape studio here and, uh, and it's great for me. And then if I have to fly up for an audition, that's easy. It's an hour and a half flight. But yeah, that's kind of, it's just, I never really had to think about it. It always just was there for me. And, and a lot of people were my mentors. You know, I'm not, I'm not, a, I know like for racing, I know you got Greg Moore. Yeah, like people. heroes, right? They weren't mentors Yeah, they were heroes. Yeah. heroes. Um, but I remember I loved Celine Dion. And when I was really young, I read her book. And for her, it was just... What she did for her voice and what she knew made her voice best, you know, between eating, drinking, sleeping, she knew exactly what she had to do to have the purest voice. And she had that. Um, And for me, it was just, okay, how do I just surround myself constantly and be around people that that love acting? And that that's just kind of and then you meet those people and they become your mentors because you watch what they're doing. You know, a lot of my girlfriends are doing great. They're doing really big things. And it's it's just so great to see everyone work hard together. And I don't know, that's kind of, as long as I'm surrounded by it, then I, I you know, I, get, I just breathe it. So that's kind of my thing. And I, I met your family. They're all amazing, beautiful people. Were they always supportive? And what role did your parents play in that, in that uh, evolution? They were, my parents were incredibly supportive. Um, they had to... You know, when I was first in university, I couldn't really afford all the classes. There's tons of classes. There's headshots. There's there's missing school. There's a lot of things that go into it. And they they never said anything. They just helped me. And my brother was my brother's like my best friend. He's my only sibling. Um, he kind of always knew that was for me. Um, and Right before I booked my big gig, which was Spun Out, and that's a a sitcom that I did in my early 20s, and that was my big role. Right before that, I made a profile on LinkedIn Mm -hmm. and was looking for receptionist jobs because I thought, 
you know, I can't live off of these commercials and things aren't going my way. And I, and that's when I started getting lost. And that's right when I booked it. And I, I knew that was kind of the universe. And my whole family was just like, we knew it. We knew that was going to come for you. And they did. And they were, I, I always had that support. You know, as I said, I was four years old doing Steve Urkel impressions. They're like, we don't know what else you're going to do with your life. So. <laughs> this is not a discernible life skill in any other yeah. industry. Yes. So we're going to have to make acting work. Yeah. No. Me as a receptionist. Don't be a waitress. A <laughs> no. Oh, that was a nightmare too. <laughs> Yeah, I think I heard that story. Um, yeah. What about you, James? I know you've you've told me stories about uh, your relationship with your dad, um, your parents. Um, you know, being a race car, like my son's nine and he just started dirt bike racing, uh, like dirt bike riding. And Ooh. for a parent, it's terrifying, right? I'm like, mm-hmm. can't you just like play soccer or you know what I mean? Um, what what were your, I guess your parents, were, were they encouraging? And, and what role did they play in, in your career? Yeah, I mean, an immense one. You know, racing is a very bizarre sport because it is incredibly expensive, right? It is prohibitively expensive. And uh, I was lucky that my dad had a passion for motorsports as well. Um, he was kind of an amateur racer himself. He started, you know, he had a midlife crisis when he was 45 and bought a vintage car and started racing, you know, other expats who had midlife crises and bought vintage cars. Um and so, you know, we didn't come from a racing background, but we came from a passionate racing family, I guess you could say. And so when I got a go-kart and I started racing, yeah, I think there's there's a there's a kind of like a, a misnomer that it's more dangerous than other sports, right? But when my mom was getting, like I was just telling the story yesterday to somebody, my mom would get flack from, you know, other moms in the neighborhood saying, how could you let your son race go-karts? That's so dangerous. There's no seatbelts. There's no roll cage. And she was like, well, your kid plays hockey and how many, you know, concussions has he had or how many teeth has he lost? And your kid plays football and your kid plays soccer and how, how are his knees doing? You know, and I did eight years of, of high level carding and I never once got injured. So it was kind of like, you know, all my friends had broken wrists and collarbones and everything. I never, I never had an injury as I graduated and moved up the ranks. Obviously the, the risk gets higher. Um, but, but racing, you're kind of like, you're either fine or you're dead if I'm, if I'm going to be like totally blunt about it. So there's not a lot of small injuries in racing anymore. Mm. Uh, the cars have really gotten quite safe. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, it would have been really easy at any point in my, you know, early years for my parents to be like, you know what, this is too dangerous or, you know, we know we can't afford to take you further than a certain point. So let's not even bother trying now. And, at 12 or 13, like what leverage did I have to fight them on that? But, uh, they were always incredibly supportive. They said, if this is what you want to do, we will do whatever we can to help you. And my dad was kind of my mentor because he was my manager. We didn't, we didn't know anybody in racing. We were doing this all by ourselves. We made a lot of mistakes, but we learned together. And, um, and yeah, I mean, he was my manager all the way up getting me into IndyCar. So it was just kind of him and I against the racing world, so to speak, and uh, I, I couldn't have done it without without their support. And, you know, when I was even younger, sometimes my sister would have, you know, I had an older sister and, and she would she would still have an older sister. Um, she would have to miss, you know, parties on a Saturday or hanging out with friends because mom and dad were busy. But I needed to go to the go-kart track and my brother, same thing. I mean, it, it really was something where at some point every member of my family had to contribute or sacrifice or whatever it was for me to get to where I was. And 
having that sort of support system around you from the age of like 14 when I when I really started taking it seriously uh, is, I mean, you couldn't be luckier. You know, I couldn't have been in a better spot at that point. When when you said uh, we've made mistakes, learned and, and and grew out of out of those mistakes, what was like one of the biggest um, learning experiences, and and how how did your dad teach you about managing so called failure? I don't believe in such a thing, but sometimes we do feel pain when when we grow. Uh, talk to me about that. Yeah, another 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 way to frame failure is just a painful lesson. You know, it's, but there's something to be learned from everything. Um, yeah. For, I mean, honestly, y- you could kind of trace it all back. Every major mistake we made, you could trace back to trusting someone we shouldn't have trusted. Mm. And, and you'd hate that that's how the world is, but I mean, let's call a spade a spade. That's how it is. And that's how business is. That's how sport is. It's, it's, it's a minefield, you know, and there are people out there to take advantage of people. And whenever there's money involved, that's going to happen. Mm. So I, I became a very good judge of character, I think, early in my life and was able to kind of identify red flags with people. But get, again, because we learned lessons the hard way and we made those mistakes and it cost us whether it was time or money or results, whatever it was. And so a lot of it was just learning to navigate the industry, which I think is really just you know, racing's a, racing's a sport of people. It's not about cars or engines or tires. It's about people. And so, and I think, I think film's probably the same way. And I think business is the same and, and everything really is just about the people that make up whatever it is you're trying to do. And once I understood that and understood how to read people and, and how to gauge people's character and people's intentions, uh, I think is when we really started making big strides and, and put ourselves in the right place to kind of keep moving up. That's so true. In, in our industry, it's probably the same in racing. It's, you know, money is money, you know, take money from anywhere. And there's kind of like that desperation that if you have a sponsor, I mean, it's money, right? You got to take it. Um, but as you get older, you start to realize that alignment is so much more important and alignment and values, integrity and all that stuff, because all the money in the world with a sponsor, if they're a big pain in the ass, you can't perform at the at the highest level, and it, it makes the whole experience not fun. So what you want to do is surround yourself, I guess, with people that you trust. Number one, uh, and number two, that you enjoy being around. Um, how how big is how big was your team at, at the height? You know, like how what's the typical? Because I mean, I just saw like millions of dollars. Every team is like massive. There, it's like a whole machine. How many people are are on your team generally? So yeah, it's it's funny because you know a lot of people look at racing as an individual sport, right? There's one driver in the car, and that's the one whose name pops yeah. up on the TV, and that's the one who gets to spray the champagne at the end. But yeah. it is the epitome of a team sport, you know, because it takes at the IndyCar level probably 25 people to make an IndyCar get to a racetrack, do the race, finish the race, be competitive. <laughs> and that's everything from mechanics and engineers to machinists to uh, engine techs mm. to truck drivers to tire people to the commercial staff, the PR staff. All these people play an integral part, right? If you don't the commercial staff's just as important as the driver because if they don't do their job and get a sponsor to get the money, we can't afford to go to the racetrack in the first place and I don't get to do my job. Right. So mm. it, it literally is every everybody's job is, is a very, very important element of it. And then it, it kind of goes to the next level in the sense that, you know, my life is in the hands of the people that build my car. 
So I have to trust that they know what they're doing. There has to be an incredible level of trust there. And it's a life or death situation. So, yeah, I mean, I can't think of a better example of a team coming together to achieve something under risky circumstances. And so, yeah, I mean, 20, 20 to 25 people is, is the size of a team for one car. You know, when we would run a multi, multi-car team, uh, last year we had a four-car team. So we were traveling with over 100 people to every race. <laughs> and, uh, it, yeah, it, it takes, it takes wow. a village to raise a racing driver. So true. And what's it like being married to one? I guess you get asked that a lot. Um, the sense I get as an observer, I'm just looking in, but I see community. I see families, kids, husband, wives, like whole teams, people coming together. Um, is that an aspect that you enjoy? Absolutely. Um, yeah, it, it is a community. And I don't know that people um, fully understand what we all go through um, individually and together. And to have support and people who genuinely understand, you know, what we're going through, whether it was a wreck or um, a bad qualifying even, or, you know, they didn't finish the race or just, you know, women who really understand the sport that you can talk to. I just, I don't know what I would do without them. Um, Especially when you're new and you come in and you don't understand it. These women at the track got me through it when I, when I just didn't understand, like the first time you hit the wall, I don't know. I don't know how bad it is. And they're around me saying, it's okay, it happens all the time. <laughs> like, oh, okay, more wine, please. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the community is, is amazing because it, it's not easy. It's a lot of moving around. It's a lot of lack of sleep. The women that can do it with kids, like they're <laughs> incredible. I don't think I could. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's, it's very emotional and it's draining and it's, you know, acting's the same kind of, and, but in a very different way, you know, I, James doesn't have to deal with me being, you know, thrown into a wall at 200 miles an hour. No, frankly, <laughs> so, no, I wouldn't love that. It's scary and it's, and it's hard, but yeah, community is a huge aspect of it. And as an athlete in this particular sport, yeah, I was just talking to someone who, a friend of mine who was undercover for 40, 30, 40 years. And in that culture, it's very macho, right? It's so if you're having mental health challenges or anxiety or, you know, a life crisis, there's like, at least traditionally, there was no one to go to. I'm sure that's changing. What's it like in, in, in racing? If I don't know, say you're in the car and you have a panic attack, like who do you talk to? And have you seen that happen with your colleagues? The voices inside your head. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's true. You know, I think, uh, I think it is still considered a very macho sport in a lot of ways. Um, I do think as a sport, as much as I hate to say it, we are behind other sports in some of these areas because the, the biggest thing is any admission of that is, is, perceived by the competition as a weakness and any weakness is going to be exploited and as a competitor you don't want to show any weakness to the competition so right well i hope anybody that's in that situation you know in our sport is finding the help they need away from the track i guarantee you they're not finding it at the track um that's it's just not it's just not the culture it's not how athletes think um and it's yeah it's, it's not even it's not even necessarily a a, a a situation of machoism or, or being too proud to admit you have something you need to talk about, but it's just, you can't do it in that environment because somebody will find a way to exploit that. 
Um, that's just how the the competitor's mind thinks. So it's uh, yeah, it's an interesting situation, but I've I've never per- personally witnessed it. Um, one of the harder things I think that I have seen. And it kind of goes back to something you were talking about earlier about, you know, your identity, right? And any any athlete or anybody that's been doing one thing, you know, like Becky has her entire life, if that stops all of a sudden, who are you now? And there are litany of stories of drivers who either, you know, gave up their entire childhood and dedicated their lives to becoming professionals and it just really didn't happen. And so they find themselves at... 26, 7, 8, finally accepting, I'm not going to be a professional racing driver. I've never made a dollar doing this. I'm 28 years old with zero work experience, no money, no job. Now what? Yeah. And there's been some serious breakdowns of people that have, you know, dedicated their entire lives to one thing that just gets taken away from them. Likewise, you can make it to the top. And there are plenty of examples of professionals in any sport that make it to the top level. And then two, three years later, they're done. Injury. They just didn't perform. They performed great getting there, but they didn't perform at that level, whatever it is. And it's the same thing. Then you've got the guys that, or girls that did make it to the top, had a long successful career, and have only been known for that, and have been in the spotlight for that one thing, and then it all goes away one day. You retire or whatever. Now what? Now who am I? You know, you're always so-and-so the racing driver, or so-and-so the basketball player, so-and-so, you know. That's right. So that, I think, is one of the biggest difficulties that athletes face you know people that have dedicated their lives to one thing um is actually when they when they stop doing that thing yeah that must be tough that it's like a a soldier or there's so many careers that have that the reintegration part is so challenging it's like what do you do when you so-called retire you know some at least in our business there is no retiring i know there's this thing in acting where you know especially for females if they hit a certain age it's like you know I think that's all changing, you know, and, and, uh, thankfully, but, uh, one of my mentors said to me early on that nobody can stop you from being creative. And, uh, and that's one of the most challenging things like for a director, at least the kind of work that I do, I'm only working really once every three years, you know, God willing, or every couple of years or whatever, it's, what do I do the rest of the time? And, And how do you continue to remain creative? So what do you do Becky when you're not acting? Because that's so much a part of who you are as well, right? Like, do you have other um, avenues where you express creativity? We're big film and TV people. Um, and the great thing about watching shows and movies with James is he he actually watches them like like an actor. Like, we can really discuss scenes and, and storylines. And, like, we have pretty in-depth yeah. talks about it. And I find it very fulfilling. Um He'll catch things and he'll pause it and we'll talk about it. like we'll we'll pause something and talk for like half an hour and be like all right we gotta go to bed we'll finish this tomorrow, <laughs> um, but that for me surprisingly is is so helpful for me and I learn so much from it, um, and I do enjoy that we're we are incredibly busy um, it's it's hard for me to. You know, I always wanted to take singing lessons and I tried and we just, I couldn't, I couldn't make it to the classes because we kept, we're never home every Wednesday. You know right, what I mean? Yeah. It's like I can come to one and a half, but that's about it. Yeah. Um, so there, there is, you know, I have to find a balance a lot of the time. I, I do even just enjoy having auditions. Um, I think, you know, I work really hard on them. James does them with me and sometimes we'll be at it for like three and a half hours just 
just to perfect it. And I kind of use it as like a, an acting class almost. Mm. And I, and I watch it back and we watch it back and we talk about it. And that's kind of, that's really helping me be creative, be in front of the camera and do what I do. And, and that's, you know, that's kind of my way of doing it. Cause Indianapolis just doesn't have a big acting culture and we're just mm. not back as much as I'd like to be in Canada or as much as I would need to be in order to get, you know, back into it. But hopefully when this pandemic's over, it'll be a little bit easier. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's one thing I learned is it's about quality, not quantity. And sometimes I get frustrated too. It's like, maybe I should be doing that next Christmas movie or whatever. But then, but then you have to live with yourself, right? Like, do you want to work on quality or do, or do you want to work all the time? And And I think some actors that work in TV get burnt out because they're just doing the same thing over and over and over. And that also becomes like monotonous, I guess. Um, one thing I want to ask you both is coming from a Canadian platform, this may sound like a strange question, but what does it mean to you to be Canadian and, and working, you know, all over North America? Because as we know, as Canadians, when we are in America, it feels very different, but there's something really also um, invigorating about that entrepreneurial spirit, the the American dream, and all that. Does it come up a lot? Is it something you've thought about, and uh, and how's that played a part in your life? Well, definitely for you. I mean, mm. you're the Canadian driver. <laughs> the token. <laughs> I'm not the Canadian. You're like actress. the mayor of your own town. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was always uh, it was always a huge privilege to represent Canada, you know, at the highest level of our sport over here. And it was also a huge responsibility. You know, I, I, I put a lot of extra pressure on myself because I was for a long time, the only Canadian in this, in the series. Wow. Um, I put a lot of extra pressure on myself to give Canada something to cheer for, you know, give them a, a driver they could be proud of. And a huge part of my motivation for a long time was always to make, make Canada proud, to make the fans back home proud. You know, I, I always felt such incredible support uh, from the entire country. And, you know, being able to have the race in Toronto, I mean, a lot of the drivers in our series don't get a race in their home country, never mind their backyard. And that, that was such a privilege. That was something that, you know, I never took for granted. And it was the busiest week of my year by a <laughs> like, significant factor. But I loved it. You know, I, I loved it because I was just so, I was so honored to have that opportunity. And, and the support was always incredible. It was always so much fun racing at home. Um, it sucks the last two years we haven't been able to have that race. That's kind of been a, a bit of a blow. But, uh, no, it's, it's been a huge honor. I mean, I always love, I always love watching the Olympics, right. And I always hated that racing was never an Olympic sport because I think there'd be nothing cooler than representing, you know, your country in the Olympics. Yeah. So I, I tried to do what I could, you know, in a non-Olympic sport and, 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 you know, fly the Maple Leaf high. What about you, Becky? I know there's a lot of Canadians in LA and the most successful ones Americans claim as their own don't even acknowledge <laughs> that they are Canadian. Oh, so I know. <laughs> how did that feel for you? And because you spent a lot of time in LA. I did spend a lot of time in LA and it's, it's such a big pond. It's an ocean with so many fish. <laughs> mm. Something that I loved about Canada is, you know, it's grown so much, especially Toronto and Vancouver. The film industry has grown an incredible amount since even I just started. Um, but when I started, it felt like such a small community and such a family. And, and, and now how big it is, I still feel like 
we all kind of know each other and there's something really, really special about that. And you go to LA and it's just, it's so oversaturated, but it's, it just doesn't feel like family. So I, I don't know, being, I, being a Canadian in this business, I just, I love it. And I love the people I work with and I mostly do work in Canada. So I'm not, um, I'm not a Canadian amongst a lot of Americans, but I do love being Canadian to my Canadian driver over here. Uh, I like that we both represent that the country and it, yeah, it makes us proud, I think. Mm-hmm. Special. I, I always found it weird when they said, you know, when I spent a lot of time in L.A. as well, and they would always say Canadians are so nice. I know. You know, that was sort of like, okay, well, massive generalization. I'm like, I'm not nice. It's because we say you know, sorry but, all the um, time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's that passive aggressive thing, you know, but uh, yeah. I, I feel like, <laughs> I don't know, it's like. In a way, in sports, especially, and, and even in film, it was a bit of a stigma for a while, like saying you're Canadian. It's like you're the little brother from up north or sister. And and uh, I feel like with the Raptors, with music, with film, TV, like we've really turned a page. And, uh, you know, I guess yeah. it's that way in, in racing as well. Like, I, I don't think there's that much of a stigma because we can do it as well, if not better than anyone else. Do you feel that? Yeah, I think so. You know, I think you're. I think you're right. I mean, I think there there has been a bit of an explosion, you know, in terms of of Canada's presence in it's certainly the the North American scene, which kind of by default is the global scene when you when you're talking music or movies or sports. Um, you know what what the the Drakes and the Biebers of the world, you know, and Sean Mendes in in music and the the Ryan's I like to say in uh in movies and and you know and Seth and what he's done. Um it's it, it really has, you know, it, it's like you say, they, they they can't claim them all anymore. The the few like nobody knows Jim Carrey's Canadian. Like when I talk to people about it, they're like, oh he's Canadian. I'm like, yes, he is like guy. Myers just yeah. Bieber. Like yeah, there, there's so all many the that they just they're like, oh yeah, no, we just assumed because he, he was a Hollywood star, we assumed he was American. Um but I really think that has that has sort of changed and it's cool because we're, I, I don't want to say we're the little country that could because we're very, you know, we're a very capable group of people. We're just a tenth of the population, right? So yeah. uh, I think when you consider that we are, you know, fishing from a smaller pool, I mean, per capita, we, we have a pretty good hit rate, whether it's music, television, movies, sports. I think, uh, I think we do pretty well. When, when you both were um, kids, did you have big dreams and, and were you always committed to that dream or did... Uh... Did it become foggy at times? And and have you, uh, I guess, set new goals now that you're at this stage in your careers? Yeah, for me, I think I was just always going to be a big star. That was kind of always what I wanted. Um, as I grew up and got into it, there were definitely foggy times, as I mentioned before. You know, moving to Indianapolis was a big change. Or before I got the sitcom and thought I had to be a receptionist. And um, I think as you grow older, you have to think realistically and like what is it that actually makes you happy and I feel like my life went in a way that I am I think if I became a huge star at 20 years old I probably would have been the next you know Britney Spears or Paris Hilton and had a bit of I I don't know that I could have handled it when I look at what it actually entails because you don't actually know no exactly and um being with James, I, I want to be there for him. I want to be there at the races. You know, it's really important to me. Um, I've missed some important ones. I've seen what that looks like, and I like to be there as much as I can. So um, I'm very happy and lucky that I get to work the way that I do and how it fits into our schedule. And 
and I wake up in the morning, I'm like, okay, like I am happy. This is what I want. Um, but it takes a while, you know, there's different levels and it's, do you want to be the best or do you want to do what you do and be happy and do it well? And that's kind of, I think how my, my, my plans have changed a little bit, but it's, you know, we're always working towards something. So there's always goals. I think, yeah, what you're describing is fulfillment. You know, a lot of people equate success to winning an Oscar. And mm-hmm. then those people, a lot of time, or winning the lottery or whatever it is, and then they become depressed right after. Because it's like, well, now that I have that Oscar, now what? Now what? So uh, what you're describing is is fulfillment, which is so important. What about you, James? I mean, as far back as I can remember, I, I wanted to do what I'm doing. You know, I, um, I, for in the early days, I never thought it was a possibility. Yeah. I thought hey, that'd be cool, but like, it's not a real job and real people don't actually get to do that. So I'm not going to focus too hard on it when I was really young. And then, you know, I, I hit a, I hit a point about 14 when I sort of just really focused all my energy and in, in making it as a, as a professional racing driver. And, um, that was that was just always the goal, and the 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 hard part about it is, and it's the same in a lot of industry and um, and all sport. It's so hard to get to that top level, and then you get there, and then you realize it's so much harder to stay at that level. Mm. You know, to to prove to people that you deserve one shot is is very difficult, but then to to prove to them that you deserve that same shot year after year after year after year. It's like everything that took you 10 years to do to get that first shot, you've got to do that again every single year. And uh, and so the, you got there and that was the goal. And then it's like, okay, now you want to win a race and that's the goal. It's okay, then you want to win a championship. That's the goal. And kind of like Becky says, as you, as you age and you mature, you understand what kind of, what matters, what goals have the 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 feel like kind of the the fulfillment feeling that come with them and which are just sort of statistics you know and 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 i think it does i think your mindset does change a little bit um and you know i'm I'm at a point where i've certainly got more races behind me than in front of me and Mm. if i asked 16 year old me you know do my stats stack up to what i would have wanted the answer would probably be no, if I'm being totally honest. But if you ask 35-year-old me, hey, how do you feel about what you've done behind the wheel of a car? I'd be like, yeah, no, thrilled. The fact that I even got to do this for as long as I've done it, any achievement that I actually had in the car is is a bonus. You know, like it's, I think you become a lot more appreciative um, of just how lucky we both are as people to do what we do. I mean, she likes making the joke that I drive in circles for a living and she plays pretend. I mean, (laughs) who gets to say that, you know? (laughs) It's so true. It's so true. And and it's easy to take it for granted. Like Mm -hmm. I was watching this actor interview last night and he said, and he became very emotional. He said, I got to work with my heroes. I got to, to play for a living and do exactly what I wanted to do. You're in that point zero 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 one percent of the world population that gets to say that, and you know it's such a privilege. Um, I want to, as as we wrap up, I want to ask you this because there's some emerging artists out there listening to this and saying, you know, how did they do it? You know, is there a, a piece of advice that you can both give to somebody starting out that has a big dream, big goal uh, that that could help and support them through that? I mean, it's. I hate saying it because it sounds so cliche, but there's no secret. It's, it's perseverance. It's hard work. It's work ethic. It's treating people well. Um, 
you know, both of us have had incredible opportunities that were born out of having worked with someone in some capacity and just being a good person and doing your job and showing up prepared that opened up other opportunities to continue doing this incredibly cool thing that we both get to do. Um, and, and getting there, just getting there, the ones that get there are the ones that just wanted it more and were willing to put in the effort and not quit when it got hard. If you were willing to quit, then you didn't want it bad enough. And it sounds so cliche. And I'm sure there's a hundred thousand examples of people that would argue that they wanted it bad enough and they worked hard enough and it still didn't happen. But I promise you there are, there are very few cases of people that didn't really want it that bad, didn't work that hard and it did work out. You know, so there might be a cases where you did all that stuff and it didn't work out, but there's zero cases of where you didn't do that and it did work out. So it's just about being true to yourself and and thinking about what does make you happy. Make sure you're always putting yourself and, you know, your health and mental health and happiness in a, in a high spot, but it's, it comes down to work ethic. It comes down to just wanting it more. Yeah. And as for an actor, for every, you know, 1000 no's, there might be a yes. So you know, you can't look at those things as failures. You have no idea why you're not getting chosen. You have no idea if it has anything to do with you. And you just have to brush it off and go to the next one. And you can't let that bring you down. That would be my piece for an actor. (laughs) I'm glad you both shared that because it's not the narrative or the story that you see on Instagram. Like when you see an athlete, you see the, the result you see the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the Ferrari, the Rolex watch, but the grind, that part, the discipline, the showing up and doing the work, it, you know, that's the part that you don't hear often talked about. So I'm, I'm glad, I'm really happy you shared that. Yeah, there are, there are a lot of examples I feel of um, people and it doesn't matter. It could be in the acting world, could be in the sports world that maybe got to the top because they just had an, an insane amount of natural ability. Um, but it was funny. So a friend of mine told, told me this story and I'll, I'll cut it down dramatically, but he ended up having a, he was 12 years old, I think, and had a really random chance meeting on the side of a mountain skiing with Tom Cruise. And it was him, his 12 year old buddy and Tom Cruise. And I'm like, man, like, what was he like? He must've been kind of a, I, I don't know. I had this perception that like, man, superstar, two 12 year old kids bugging him on a mountain. Like he was probably kind of a jerk. Right. And like, couldn't have been nicer. And he goes, and this, this guy actually works in film. And he's like, you, you learn that the biggest celebrity, the biggest stars in Hollywood, they're all very talented, but they're also all really nice people. Because if you have a hundred really talented people and 60 of them are really nice, those 60 are going to get all the jobs because they're just as talented, but they're also good people. And the people that are really talented, but they're assholes, they're eventually not going to be there anymore. And it's the same kind of thing in sport. There's these people that have just innate talent that get to the top, but they didn't have to work hard to get there. And so they don't maintain at that level or their attitude is bad. And there are so many people that are willing to work hard and be good people that you will be replaced if you can't be both. And it's, it's a, it's a tough lesson in, in some ways, but yeah. like talent alone sometimes isn't enough. No. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's kind of fascinating, but mm-hmm. it's, it's an important part, I think. So important. Uh, yeah, it's, there's no point in doing what we do if it's not fun. I mean, you know, there are huge rewards that come with it and it's so fulfilling, but ultimately you want a film set or a track 
to be to have a good vibe and and bringing a great attitude to it is so important i i totally agree with that um i want to thank you both it's so great seeing you both and uh you know i i can't wait to see what you do next and can't wait to see becky play a dark role uh i know she's got it <laughs> yeah. and uh <laughs> and i can't wait so to, to catch up with you both in person likewise yeah. likewise yeah Same well here. let's do it i'm yeah. available i'm available thank you so much thank you both it's so great seeing you and uh you know thanks for being so honest and earnest with uh with me and really enjoyed this thank you thanks, thanks for having us on thank you sergio so good to see good you good to see you bud